This morning, I realized I'm out of contacts. I wear daily contacts. I'm out. I don't have a doctor's appointment set up. I've got to figure this situation out. Um, and, and you can do that. That's awesome. And for the second week in a row, I did not get my trash out on time. Does that, is anybody else, is that just like, I'm going to be the crazy woman running down there in her jammy screaming, wait, please come back. Why can't I do some of these simple things? I have a friend who says, Shannon, you are the most unorganized, organized person I've ever met. That is the truth. You'll come to my house. Oh, you'll be impressed. My drawers are organized. My pantry, like it's all looks good. But I don't live that way, right? It's, it's stuff like that. So I'm always having to pull myself back in. Uh, speaking of love, isn't Baby V, Violet, the cutest thing you've ever seen? I just want to, ooh, just that little, those cheeks. I just love them. But I had the privilege of babysitting some sweethearts um, on Sunday. And can I just tell you, so two of them, like, I think like 10 to 11 months old and three. God gives babies to young people for a reason. <laughs> uh, we had them from about noon to 10 and they kicked my butt. And here this, the, they were the best, sweetest angels you have ever seen. But I mean, we went on a walk, we went to the park, I did the slides, we did the bars, we did it all, we made food, we went to a Super Bowl party, we played with everybody. I held that little chunk the whole night. We, I had that mama eye watching all the other kids around him. I mean, I did the whole thing, got home, took baths, put in jammy. I was exhausted. <laughs> I, I loved it. I'd do it again tomorrow if they asked, but I FaceTimed my daughter and she goes, oh my gosh, they are so cute. They're delicious. I said, I know, but I want you to know I'm practicing. I'm getting in shape is what I'm telling you. So whenever you're ready, get it going, girlfriend, because I'm ready for this. So I do. I need to practice more so that I'm in shape because at the end of the night, man, I just died. <laughs> they kicked my butt. So, but speaking of kicking my butt, um, Daniel, tell me again why I picked this book. Okay, so I, I'm going to tell you that uh, this is so hard, I can't even begin to explain, but it is so wonderful. I'm so glad personally that I picked it, and I'm spending this amount of time in it, but I just hope I can do it some sort of justice for you because it's a lot. And I want to remind you over and over that there are really, really smart people who disagree with how I'm going to lead you. There are really, really smart people who agree with the way I'm going to lead you. And I don't want any of this being used for divisiveness or any of that, because the book was written to do what? Hope, it, it, to give us hope. It was not created to be divisive, all right? 
So I'm going to do my best to teach you as the overall narrative, as I see it, see it and study it and understand it. Um, at the end of the day, people, we win. Okay, we win. Uh, we are saved in Christ Jesus, and, and, and in him is our glorious hope. And how that plays out, we may not know uh, every detail, but we know that. We win. The Ancient of Days will open the book and the beast will be destroyed. And we are so glad because our king paid our way and he is the representative of the true saints. And so in him, we have salvation. Now that's what all I really need to know. But how we, how we live out in times, it does matter. Because what it does, in many ways, how we see things playing out, it does impact the way we live now. And um, I'm not going to go into all of that, but it is important. So I don't want us to, most of the time when, when things get crazy and there's fear, we do one of two things. We either freak out and we go like, we obsess over what's happening, what trying to figure it out, every detail. Okay, we either do that or we become totally complacent. Like, I don't care. And I'm not sure either one of those is the way to go. And I think that though is typical humanity. We even see it in the scripture. So we're called in the midst of all this to endure and to remain faithful. Now, what does that mean? That in the middle of all of what we see, all the upheaval, remaining faithful means we still have a passion to do our job. And what is our job? To live out, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom has come, that we have a king and he is seated on, at the right hand of God the Father. And we are going to preach this glorious message of the kingdom. And one day we're going to see that kingdom restored right? In the meantime, I'm going to teach you Daniel chapter 8, okay? Now, we went through the outline of it, uh, the first part, just quickly, okay? So, I'm going to read just kind of through my notes. I'm going to bullet point so you remember, and now I'm, and then I'm going to go and read to you the second half of Daniel, and then we're going to go on a journey together, okay? Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity. Lord, you know how inadequate I feel up here teaching this. And so God, I pray that your spirit would be the great counselor, that he would be strong, that even Lord, maybe as my mouth moves, puzzle pieces come together and fill in the blanks of some things I'm still pondering that I still don't have a full grasp of. And in the process, Lord, would you just help me have a peace even when I sit in those areas of mystery just to have a peace and a trust in you, um, that you are fully in control. The fact is, you know every detail of your plan, and I trust you. And so, God, I pray that you would help me teach um, your scripture and that you just know how, how much I desire to do it right and well. So I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to break down my notes. The beginning of Daniel chapter 8, the time period, if you remember, 
was the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. So it's two years. This vision is two years after the vision in chapter 7. We established that. The location where Daniel was taken was Susa, the citadel, in the area of Elam, on the Ulay Canal. Okay, that's where he was. And that basically became the center of the Persian Empire in that area. Um, Susa, you, you remember Susa? It's in another book, Esther, right? Okay, and then he had a vision. Let's, let's remember the vision. The first thing he saw was a ram that had two horns. It said that both of them were high, but one was higher and it came up last. Okay, last week we talked about what we know Gabriel's going to tell us when he uh, gives the interpretation of the dream. What empire is that? The Medo-Persian Empire. Okay, the Medes and the Persians. Two horns, both strong, but one grew higher, okay, which would be the Persians, and they came up last. All right, so this is talking about the Medo-Persian Empire. It says that it charged westward, northward, and southward, which gives us a clue of the direction it came from. Which direction did it come from? The east, okay, that falls in line with the Persian Empire. No beast could stand before him. Um, it's interesting that it goes back to reference the beasts of chapter 7. So that clues us in that the, are, these are worldly empires, earthly empires. The second thing he sees in his vision is a male goat. Says it came from the west. It came across the face of the earth, which talks about gaining lots of territory. And it says, and it did it without touching the ground. So it was the swiftness. And who do we know this is? Greece. Okay. These are the Greeks. Um, it had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Remember what horns represent? Kings, powers that rise up within the, the kingdom. And he charged the ram and broke his two horns. Which I talked about, you know, this biblical like use of exaggeration. Remember how we talked about that? You're, you're going to see lines of that throughout all prophecy in the Old Testament. Oh, Josiah was the best king that ever was and ever will be. Until when? Until Hezekiah. Right? So... Each animal is like, and nobody could face up against them, and nobody could destroy them until what? <laughs> Somebody does. And then they say that about the next one, okay? So the goat becomes exceedingly great. While still strong, the horn was broken. But it doesn't say it was conquered. It doesn't give anybody credit. It just says it was broken. And what do we know about the main horn of this image? Who do we think it is? Alexander the Great. Okay, the, the conqueror, the great conqueror coming out of um, the Grecian Empire. And he conquered more territory than anyone before him in such a swift way. But he died young, some believe, from alcoholism. But when he died, it says, from it, from that horn, came four horns towards the four winds of heaven. All right, which also refers back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 2 through 3. We talked last week about when Alexander the Great died, um, that his four generals, four great generals took over and his empire was divided. Um, the two we focused on 
were Seleucus, who had Syria, and it's called the Glorious Land, or Israel, and the Ptolemies that had Egypt. Um, We talked about the fact that they constantly were fighting over territory, and especially in the territory of Israel, until at one point, okay, the Seleucids took over under uh, Seleucid or Antiochus III, which is Antiochus Epiphanes' father. And we're going to get into that more, okay? So Antiochus Antiochus Epiphanes, I can't speak today, gained the throne by killing his brother and holding his nephew hostage in Rome. He gained power because he was a ruthless politician. And so almost no one argues the fact that this little horn that comes up in the vision is Antiochus Epiphanes. And here's how it's described. Um, It said he rose up even to the host of heaven. So he grew exceedingly great. Um, Some of the hosts and stars it threw down to the ground and trampled them. He murdered rulers and the people of God. It became great even as great as the prince of hosts. We know that he exalted himself to be worshipped. He literally referred to himself as God in flesh, God manifest. Um, It says that the regular burnt offerings were taken away. The place of sanctuary would be overthrown. And all of this due to transgression. So keep that in mind, okay? The burnt offerings would stop. The sanctuary would be overthrown. Um, It says that this little horn would throw truth to the ground and he would prosper. Okay. Then Daniel hears a holy one speaking to another holy one. And he asks him, how long is the vision? Okay. So let's, let me find that spot and let's start reading. Okay, I'm going to start in verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? Now I want you to think about the question. How long is the vision concerning what? He wants to know how long, uh, how long will this last? Well, what is this? Concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. So in this vision, what I've seen, how long will that last? And he says, for 2300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Let's go on and read the rest and then we'll break it down. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulay and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. What end? The end of 
The question concerning regular burnt offerings, the transgression that makes desolate, the giving over of the sanctuary, and hosts to be trampled underfoot. Are you with me? Okay, that, it's important. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medo and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. I mean, there it is, girls. He just told us exactly what this vision is about. As far as the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom. So what end are we talking about? Okay. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. That, that's, I'm not going to teach on that really, but I do want you to see that. The vision is given to Daniel, but this is way in the future, right? So he's saying, okay, so seal this up. Because this is far off. Unlike, by the way, Revelations, which says that this is soon. And I'm going to tell you, I believe... Soon means soon, and I believe far means far. Okay? And you think, well, duh. Well, no, not duh. Because many people uh, do a lot of mental gymnastics with far and soon when they talk about prophecy. Okay? It says, and I, Daniel, was overcome and laid sick for some days. I would too. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. It, it. it stuck with him. He didn't understand it. He went about his business, but it was tough. So here we go. So he says, he hears a holy one speaking, and the holy one asks him, how long is the vision concerning the burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? The question was concerning the time for these specific things. And he said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Do you know approximately how many years that is? Almost seven, depending on kind of when you start. Between six and a half, seven. Okay. Now, it also says, uh, it says, and then the sanctuary shall be restored. So some people uh, equate that the evening and morning to refer back to Genesis, referring to days, so 2,300 days. Other people may interpret it as evening and, mor evening and morning sacrifices. So if you look at that, you cut that in half, right? 
and it is 1150 or approximately three and a half years. Okay? Do any of those, are those ringing bells with you? Seven years, something's going to happen at three and a half years. Okay. All of that stuff. Just stay with me. The purifying of the temple. Okay, do you realize if we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, okay, when all things were restored, what they are referring to here is the purifying of the temple. It's what we celebrate at Hanukkah. It's the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, and we're going to read even more in a minute about Judas Maccabeus coming in and gaining their freedom from uh, Antiochus from the Greeks, and he is going to cleanse the temple, which we celebrate Hanukkah. Okay, that event, the purifying of the temple, was December 25th in the year of 165 BC. If we count back 2300 days, we arrive at 171 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes began his persecution in earnest. All right, just let that sink in your head. 1150 can work for the time from the temple desecration. So halfway in the middle of his reign, you see him desecrate the temple, which is called the desolate, the abomination of desolation. Okay, so just to give you some time frame. But the point is that all of this was completed before who? Jesus. Okay, Gabriel's interpretation. Uh, he came near. I was frightened. All of this should seem familiar. Anytime a holy being approaches humanity, what is the first thing they say? Do not be afraid because it's frightening. He fell on his face. Uh, yeah, right? Anytime humanity experiences the divine, what do we do? Think of Isaiah. Go away from me, God. I'm a man of unclean. I mean, you hide your face. Um, when he spoke to me, I fell into a deep sleep, then he touched me and I stood. I will make known, he says, the end of indignation, the appointed time of the end, which we've already established. He goes into the earthly empires. He says the ram is the Medes and the Persians. The goat are the Greeks. The horn is Alexander the Great. He makes it clear. By the way, isn't it interesting that this time, it's not really just, they're not described as beasts. They're described as animals used in sacrifice. So we have this whole um, picture of these sacrificial animals and we're going to see what is going to the abomination of desolation in the temple and we're going to see the purification of the temple all of that imagery is there he says four kingdoms shall arise but none with his power and at at the latter end of their kingdom so he's talking about that's the end of their kingdom when the transgressors have reached their limit a king of bold face, which understands riddles. So how would you describe that? A bold face, arrogant, right? Uh, cunning, manipulative, a lying tongue, a really good politician. Okay? And then it says in verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And then it gives a list. Listen to the things. He's going to cause fearful destruction. He's a destroyer. He will destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he will make deceit 
a lying tongue. Prosper. In his own mind, he will become great. Who is behind him? Satan. Right? He is the destroyer. He is a murderer. That's what he's done from the beginning. He is the enemy of the people of God. The Bible describes him as cunning. He is cunning. He will make deceit prosper. Why? He's the father of lies. In his own mind, he will become great. Right? And you sought to put himself as God. To put himself up on the holy mountain. He shall rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. I'm going to read you some history because I'm not smart enough to remember it all. Okay. Some of you who are new, you're like, I don't know about this Bible study. Just stick with me. Okay. Consider it Bible study and history class. I mean, where do you go to get this right now? Right. Enjoy it. I mean, if you remember an eighth of it, yay you. I mean, where are you going to, when do you have time to, <laughs> to do all this? So let me read you some of this. It's so um, interesting when you hear history and how it fits right in to the Bible. Okay. After God provided the prophet Daniel with a panoramic vision of the rise and fall of kings from the Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar to the Grecian Alexander the Great, he revealed painstaking details of a terrible seven-year tribulation that would befall the saints during the beastly reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Seven Syrian kings would precede Antiochus to the throne. Three others would be uprooted before the deluded madman solidified his rule. Onias III was the high priest when the murderous beast ascended to the throne. He upheld the holy covenant of his God and firmly resisted the Hellenizing ways of the Greco-Syrian despot. However, his brother, whose name was Joshua, who is the same name as what? Jesus. But he changed his name to take on a Hellenistic name, and so he is referred to as Jason. Jason was pleased to sell out his brother for a mess of pottage. He offered Antiochus a large sum of money in exchange for the office of high priest. What's happening to the office of high priest? It's becoming a political position. Okay, by the way, it still was in Jesus' day. With Onias in exile, the Jewish nation was rapidly transformed into a microcosm of the Hellenistic culture surrounding it. At the behest of Antiochus, Jason erected a Greek gymnasium persuading the Hellenizing populace to swear allegiance to the Grecian gods and effectively transform Jerusalem into a Greek ghetto. Jason's treacherous betrayal brought, bought him but three years. For an even larger bribe, Antiochus transferred the priesthood to the maniacal Menelaus, who subsequently orchestrated the murder of Onias. All this, however, was but the beginning of the tribulation. 
In Daniel 8, the small horn is described. It says he started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. In arrogance, it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Daniel heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary, and the host that will be trampled underfoot. And he said, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be um, reconsecrated. The murder of Onias marked the beginning of the 2300 evenings and mornings as the death of Antiochus marks the end. Turmoil in the priesthood precipitated the first major massacre. Listen to this. In about 6970 BC, when Antiochus was engaged in his campaign against Egypt, Jason, who's Jason? He's the high priest that sold his brother out, right? He was Joshua, turned his name to Jason, succeeded in seizing Jerusalem in a surprise attack and obliged his rival to seek refuge. So once Jason was ousted and Menelaus was put in, while Antiochus was in Egypt, Jason came in and tried to take it back. Listen to what happens. It was this success that was the reason for the king's direct intervention in Jerusalem. Antiochus saw it as a revolt against his sovereignty and decided to punish the rebellious city. Thus, in 169 BC, he marched in person with his army against it. Jerusalem executed a bloodbath there and looted the immense treasures of the Jewish temple with the help of the high priest Menelaus himself. All the valuables amongst them, the three great golden vessels in the inner temple, the altar of incense, the seven-branch candelabra, and the table of showbread were all stolen and taken to Antioch. This is history. You can read it in um, the Apocrypha, which are the books, the historical books that happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In AD 168, Antiochus undertook yet another expedition against Egypt. He's trying to conquer all of that area that the Ptolemies hold, right? But this time, the Romans confront him. The Roman general, I can't even say his name, whoever he was, presented him with a decree of the Senate which required him to abandon once and for all his designs upon Egypt if he wished to avoid being regarded as the enemy of Rome. When Antiochus replied that he would consider the matter, this general gave him the famous brief ultimatum by drawing a circle around him with his staff and ordering him formally to make up your mind in here. Did you see what he did? You make up your mind right now while you're standing in this circle. <laughs> Embarrassed and raging as a wild beast, Antiochus proposed to vent his fury on those who remained in covenant with the Jewish God. He commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly everyone they met and to kill those who went into their houses. 
Then there was a massacre of young and old, destruction of boys, women, and children, and slaughtered young girls and infants. Within the total, this is what I want you to hear, within the total of three days, 80,000 were destroyed. 40,000 in hand-to-hand fighting, and the other were sold into slavery. In 167, three years after the murder of Onias, the ultimate sacrilege befell Jerusalem. So this is in the middle. The armed forces of Antiochus rose up against the temple fortress, abolished daily sacrifices, and set up an abomination that causes desolation. With impunity, Antiochus plundered the temple treasury, dedicated the sanctuary to the, uh, uh, the Olympian Zeus, and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Hellenized Jews in mass took on the mark of Greco-Syrian beast. They sacrificed to idols and they profaned the Sabbath. Who are these? The Jewish, the Hellenized Jews that had given in. Of course, you know. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. They cast the law. Truth was cast to the ground. Harsh and utterly grievous was the onslaught of evil, for the temple was filled with debauchery and revelry by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes and had intercourse with women within the sacred precincts. And besides, brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. The altar was covered with abominable offerings that were forbidden by the laws. People could neither keep the Sabbath, nor observe the festivals of their ancestors, nor so much as confess themselves to be Jews. On the monthly celebration of the king's birthday, birthday, the Jews were taken under bitter constraint to partake of the sacrifices. And when a festival of Dionysius was celebrated, they were compelled to wear wreaths of ivies and to walk in the procession in honor of Dionysius. Hellenized Jews willingly honored the God of libido and self-gratification. Those who revered the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob counted not their lives worthy even unto death. The intertestamental books of Maccabees are replete with accounts of their sacrifice. Here's an example. Two women were brought in for having circumcised their children. They publicly paraded them around the city with their babies hanging at their breasts, dead, and then hurled them down headlong from the wall. Others who had assembled in the caves nearby in order to observe the seventh day secretly were betrayed to Philip and were all burned together because their piety kept them from defending themselves in view of their regard for the most holy day. Second Maccabees 7 broaches the ghastly martyrdom of seven brothers and their mother willing to die rather than to, to transgress the laws of their ancestors. And I cannot read it to you because I was worried my little honey would be on the first row. It is so foul, I can't even read it out loud. What happened to these people? The dying prayer of the seventh brother found its answer in the Maccabean revolt. Against all odds, savage Jews purposed to resist the Syrian juggernaut. 
the Jewish priest Mattathias, together with his five sons, Judas, Jonathan, John, Simon, and Eliezer, initiated resistance by refusing to make sacrifices to the gods of the Greco-Syrian hordes, and with valor they implored the Hasidim, the pious ones, to join them in the battle against Hellenization. When a Hellenizing Jew sacrificed in according with the command of Antiochus, Mattathias and his sons took out a broad blade knife and cut the man down, also killing the king's officer and his soldiers. After overturning the pagan altar, Mattathias cried out, whoever is zealous for the laws of our country and the worship of God, let him follow me. And you know the end of the story, right? I could keep reading of the amazing things that happened during the Maccabean uh, revolt. And they gained, they gained freedom. In 165, Antiochus commissioned the royal Lysias in charge of Syrian affairs from the river Euphrates to the borders of Egypt to wipe the Jewish race from the face of the earth. He chose Ptolemy and Nicanor able men among the friends of the king and sent with them 40,000 infantry and 7,000 cavalry to go in the land of Judah and destroy it as the king had commanded. However, again, against all odds, Judas routed the superior Syrians at Emmaus, causing them to flee to the land of the Philistines. And in victory, Judas Maccabeus and the Jewish resistance forces offered up hymns and praises, extolling the majesty of their mighty God and reveling in the reality that there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can be succeeded against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. When Lysias saw the rout of his troops and saw the boldness that inspired those of Judas and how ready they were either to live or die nobly, he withdrew to Antioch. Judas immediately took control of all Jerusalem, recaptured the Temple Mount, destroyed the pagan altar of the Olympian Zeus, clean, cleansed the sanctuary, and reconsecrated the temple to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thus, it was on that December 14th, 164, seven years after Onias had been cut off by Antiochus and exactly three years after he had desecrated the temple fortress, abolished the daily sacrifice and set up the abomination that causes desolation that the temple was rededicated and daily sacrifices restored. Does that explain a lot to you about seven years of tribulation? about the change of what happened three and a half years in the middle. Judas and his men celebrated a great feast that lasted for eight days and which was continued to observe as the Festival of Lights Hanukkah. As the Jewish prophet Daniel foretold, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation, there will be 1,290 days. Now let me read you the last part. Do you remember what it says? That he won't die by a human hand? I will make Jerusalem a cemetery of Jews, he says. But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and invisible blow. As soon as he stopped speaking, first off, do you see the beast? It doesn't matter how bad it gets. Do you see that gnashing of teeth, this beast, this refusal to bow the knee to God? 
So he says, I will make Jerusalem a cemetery of Jews. As soon as he stopped speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief, and with sharp internal tortures, and that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others with many and strange inflictions. And yes, he did. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence. But even, but was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to drive even faster. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. Thus, he who only a little while before had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and had imagined that he could weigh the high mountains in balance was brought down to earth and carried in a litter, making the power of God manifest to all. And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms Still living in anguish and pain, his flesh rotted away, and because of the stench, the whole army felt revulsion at his decay. Wow. Does that fulfill what I just read to you in the vision? Yes. The vision about evening and morning is true. He says, but seal it up. Why? It's far off. Okay, now that's all chapter eight. That's the vision. That's an, to me, that, that's not even part of the hard part, but I'm going to do what I did in chapter seven. The, the part that interests me the most isn't just understanding or trying to understand the different chapters in Daniel, but understanding how Jesus used the different chapters in Daniel. And the verbiage of Daniel, because I think we learn so much from that. So once again, I'm less interested in timelines and charts and more interested in how Jesus used it. So let's go back to Matthew 26. And we're also going to go to Matthew 24, which is one of the hardest chapters to teach ever. But I'm going to attempt it. Why not? And the area we were in, if you remember, was basically um, 62, verse 62, 63, 64. Remember, they're about, they are, it's Jesus' trial. They are trying to execute an innocent man. Uh, nothing has been found against him, but now they have brought in these false charges. Do you remember what it was? In verse 61, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Okay, so that brings us back to what? Remind me, when did Jesus say this? When he cleansed the temple. Okay, when Jesus cleansed the temple, the Pharisees were livid. And they said, what sign will you show us Telling us you have the authority to do such a thing. That you have authority over the temple. By the way, what is the temple? It is the place where heaven and earth overlapped. The presence of God on the earth, right? What gives you the authority to do that? 
And do you remember his answer? He quoted, well, he said, destroy this temple. Here's the sign I'm going to give you to show you that I have authority to do this. Destroy this temple. And in three days, what? I will raise it up again. Okay, so he prophesies of the destruction of the earthly temple. But he then says, what? I have authority because my death and resurrection is going to show you, it's going to usher in, I am the temple. I am the temple. I am the place where earth and heaven meet. I am that. And so he is the temple. And so he says that. But here to them, he says this. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God in verse 63. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds in heaven. The son of man. What's that from? Daniel chapter seven. The son of man. Let's review a little bit. You have the ancient of days, right? And you see on the clouds, the son of man is, is approaching, is being brought to ascending, not descending, ascending to the ancient of days. And at that moment, he has given authority, sovereign power. He was worshiped and he was given an eternal kingdom, right? Last week, when we talked about this, we talked about who he was claiming to be. And, he's, and, and we talked about chapter 7. There are, I know this is deep. There are three characters in Daniel chapter 7, right? The Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, which represented the true saints, true Israel, the people of God, and who? The beasts. Well, they know who the Ancient of Days is. That's God the Father. He says... He is what? The son of man, the true representative of the saints of God. And if they're about to kill him, what are they? They're the beasts, right? You have become the beast. Jerusalem has become like Babylon. Remember, don't, don't take it out of the overall narrative. Adam, right, was made in the image of God to rule over the beasts of the field, to bring the kingdom of God or God's home to the earth. That's what they were to do. And they failed. And because they did, it didn't take very long for us to end up in chapter 11 of Genesis, Babel, where we're building a kingdom off of corruption and violence and murder, throwing God out and building it. Why? To make a name for ourselves, building that earthly empire, the beast. God then confuses their languages and the nations are born. And then what does God do? He turns to Abram, changes his name to Abraham, the father of all nations, and says, through you, right, all nations of the earth will be blessed. We know that means that the Redeemer would come through them, but he also intended for the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the people, to be a blessing to other nations. I will bless you so that you will be a Blessing. We can take that away today, can't we? They failed. 
They were given guidelines of how to live different, how to live according to the nature of God, which was best for your neighbor and community, and they failed. And now they are literally looking, they're like, you know what? We're not like the Old Testament who killed the, killed the prophets. You're about to kill Jesus. You've become the beast. Israel has become Babylon. And that is what he's telling them. And he goes on and he is saying, only I could accomplish. Only the Son of Man, the true Israel, can do what needed to be done. And when he does, which is his death and resurrection, he will be exalted to the right hand of God the Father and you will see him coming on the clouds. The Son of Man seated and coming on the clouds. What does that even mean? Coming on the clouds. Okay, you ready to see some imagery? Okay, yes, we're so excited about it. How many of you are completely overwhelmed? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm going to tie it up. <laughs> How many of you are going to stick with me, although you're completely overwhelmed? Okay, because we'll just keep chewing it. How about that? Okay, we'll keep chewing it and studying it and thinking through it. I'm overwhelmed. It's okay. But isn't it fun? Like this is the depth of scripture. I'm sorry. It's not just a three-point message for 30 minutes. Like this is it. This is where it's at. And, it, and I don't believe you'll ever walk away from studying scripture unchanged. Um, it, it, it's, it's magical. And so just stick with me, all right? I want to show you some imagery because you have to remember in all of this um, uh, apocalyptic literature, it is to people whose brains are steeped in Old Testament imagery in Scripture. They get it. They speak the same language, but we don't. And we can't make their language 21st century or we're going to get off. And so I want you to see um, the imagery here. What is the phrase coming on the clouds? Okay, clouds in the Old Testament symbolize judgment. And it is used to describe a judgment that is coming soon. Write that down in your notes. I'm going to give you a minute. Clouds, the imagery of clouds. is Old Testament prophetic language symbolizing judgment. And most of the time, almost all the time, it is used to describe a judgment that is coming soon. Let me give you some examples. And there's a lot. Like, you could Google that and get tons of references. Okay, but look at Ezekiel 30, 3 through 4. Do you know where that is? Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Do you know your books of the Bible? Learn the song. See what Sunday school did for me? Some of y'all out there don't even know what Sunday school is. <laughs> All right. Ezekiel 30, 3 through 4. This is the lament of Egypt. It was about to be crushed. 
Wail at last for the day, for the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. Now, how would we read that in the 21st century? Oh, the second come, right? Okay. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of what? Of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword shall come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be in Cush, with the slain fall in Egypt, and her wealth is carried away, and her foundation is torn down. You can continue to read. Um, and then it says, if you go down to, if you want to know what it's referring to, look at verse 10. Thus saith the Lord, I will put an end to the wealth of Egypt by the hand of who? Nebuchadnezzar. So Babylon is about to come in and crush Egypt. The day of the Lord, a day of clouds. Look at Joel 2, 1 through 2. It's hard to find. It's little. Joel 2, 1 through 2. The day of the Lord. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness that is spread upon the mountain. A great and powerful people, their like has never been before. Are you picking up some exaggerations and hyperbole and imagery? Nor will again after them through the years of all generations. What is the prophet saying? Judgment is coming. It's going to change your world. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. That's, that's what they're saying. Look at Isaiah 19. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. What? Did the Lord return to Egypt? What does that mean? Judgment is coming. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them, and I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of idols and sorcerers, and the mediums and the necromancers, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master." And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts. That's just three. There's a ton. All right, there is a ton. What is he saying to them? What you're about to do to kill the son of man. Why? Because you're the beast. You become like the beast, trampling over the innocent. But what you're about to do, my death and resurrection... It's going to usher in my kingdom and I will take my throne and you will see 
judgment, right? Those who witnessed Jerusalem's destruction along with the temple will likewise see his vindication and exaltation as Israel's rightful king. You need to understand this. What gives you the authority to cleanse this temple? Okay. What sign will you show us that gives you authority over the temple? I'll tell you what sign. Destroy this temple, because it will be in AD 70. And I will raise it up again in three days. I am the temple. They say to him, he says, from this moment on, you will see the son of, from what moment? His death and resurrection, his victory, where he will ascend to the ancient of days and all dominion and authority will be given to him and he will be worshiped and he will sit down at the right hand of God the Father. From that moment, from right now, what you are doing, I will usher in my kingdom, but you will also see the Son of Man coming in the clouds in judgment. Why? Because what I told you is coming. You're on a collision course with Rome. I have come preaching my kingdom, a different kingdom, and you rejected me. You're going to kill the innocent. I came and I showed you the kingdom of heaven on earth. I showed you what it was like. And you've determined to kill me. Why? Because you've built an empire and you want to keep it. And you're on a collision course with Rome. And I am telling you what will happen. You're going to see the judgment that I promised. It's coming. And boy, did it. It came in AD 70. They went into battle with Rome starting in 66 AD. And it culminated with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Why? Because the old law, right, has been God, Jesus fulfilled it. And he brought in a new covenant in his blood of his kingdom. We're going to stay in that for a while. So where we're headed next week, this is deep stuff, okay? I know it is. But I truly believe we live out of a lot of our end time philosophy. All right? And I'm going to tell you why I think some things are important. Um, how do I want to end it? I never have an ending, to be quite honest, because I never know where I'm going to end. Just know this. When the, when the disciples asked Jesus the question in Matthew 24, that's where we're headed. They're going to say to him, when will these things happen? All right? I believe in their heart, they're probably asking one question. But what they don't realize is they're at, he's actually going to answer. There are actually two questions there. And he's going to answer them both. He's going to answer them what is coming soon. And then he is going to answer the question of the end of the age or the restoration of all things. How many of you have heard pastors preaching and creating quite an amount of fear when they talk about, and there will be wars and rumors of war, 
and there will be famine, and there will be earthquakes. And these are but what? The birth pains, right? And so we're so busy doing what? <gasps> what is that? What does that mean? What is it? I don't believe the book of Daniel, and I don't believe Matthew intended us for, Jesus intended us for be like that. And so we're going to get into those questions. And just remember, what is this book written to do? Give us hope. Give us encouragement to do what? As the beasts roll, because that's what they're going to do. And they're going to continue to trample over the innocent. And it's not going to get better. And just when you think it can't get worse, what's going to happen? It's going to get worse. And in the middle of all that, he says that our job is to endure and to remain faithful. And remaining faithful, we're going to see, means that we are about our business through the Holy Spirit to do our part in bringing the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of earth. We care about this earth. We care about these people, right? We don't focus on being raptured out of here and not care about what happens to the earth or the people. No, the narrative is that our king will return. The part they didn't understand is the delay, the growth of the kingdom. But one day our king will return. Do you understand that? He's not giving the earth away. It's his. He's going to restore it. That's what he's going to do. He is going to restore us through the death and resurrection, through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to do the same thing to the earth that is groaning, waiting for that day. And we're going to look at that when we return. And isn't that sweet? It's awesome. Y'all are so, you're like, done. Pray, Shannon. I got to go home. I got to go home and look at my notes, okay? Uh, did anybody write down something they could take away from all this? Okay, awesome. How many people are not coming back next week? <laughs> okay, Lord, thank you for today. God, I thank you that we get to dig deep and we get to understand the language of the Old Testament. As we understand the language, we begin to see um, what you are saying to the audience that you talk to. And ultimately, we learn from that conversation as well. But Lord, sometimes the conversation, most of the time, is to the actual audience that you are speaking to. And we need to understand their situation, their culture, their language, what exactly you are saying to them. And then, yes, Lord, there is application for us. God, I pray that you would just be all in over through this Bible study. As we step into controversial things, things of mystery, of, of your second coming, Lord, we look forward to that. And you know, really, Lord, at the end of the day, if we long for that coming, if we listen for the trumpet sound, that the king will return. And we realize that that trumpet sound is going to call us and we're going to go meet you just like they would meet a returning king outside the city gates. We are going to come meet you, not to be taken away to a heaven, but to return to this earth so that you can reign and make all things right, that you can restore 
your full creation. Thank you, Lord, that you would do that. I thank you for restoration. We love you. Continue to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.